Yes, there we go. Good morning. Good to have you here today. Before we get into the Word, one quick announcement and uh, complete with a prayer request. Uh, this, after this morning's service, I'm going to be um, heading to Southern California, and uh, this evening, Pastor Haji Henderson will be bringing the Word tonight. He's a big, um, uh, well, we just love him. On, on the staff and all. You will too. And so it'll be fun to see where he goes in this big, wonderful 66 books that make up the Bible and ministering the Word uh, this evening. Every year about this time is the kind of the big uh, Calvary Chapel pastor's conference. And so people will come in from all around the world. We'll get to see people that we only get to see once a year. And it's a great time to seek the Lord in prayer and worship Him and study the Word of God together. So that conference is going to be occurring from Monday through Thursday of next week. So if you would uh, pray for that conference, that would be great. It's the first conference since Pastor Chuck has gone to heaven. And so it makes it a little bit different than it's ever been before. And uh, we'll see what the Lord has in mind for it. It'll be wonderful. I was assigned session number one uh, for teaching tomorrow. That'll be from 2.30 to 3.15 or so. So uh, I would sure appreciate your prayers for me specifically tomorrow and uh, during that time that the Lord would uh, make that edifying for everyone. So that's what's going on. I, I, I can't do anything without your prayers anymore. So there you have it. If it's a disaster, I'll come back and blame you. So I'm just kidding. But I, it means the world to me to be so connected with you. Uh, me toward you in prayer on a daily basis and vice versa. So thank you ahead of time. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And if you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, get their attention and they'll give you a Bible and that way you can hear the Word of God and read it uh, this morning, have double the impact. And we want everybody in the whole world to own a Bible, to read their Bible, to know the Bible. And uh, so please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today if you don't own one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. The word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. He writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up by victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for caring about every single thing in our life. Thank you for understanding 
the way that you do. Thank you for your wisdom, Lord. We're not in this world just set adrift without any direction and any understanding, having to make all of this up on our own. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your truth, Lord. And thank you for the power and the witness of your Holy Spirit behind it. Thank you for how deeply you have planted your word into not only our hearts and our minds, but our spirits. Thank you that you have done that. And we pray this morning as we study this passage together that you would take this passage and give it a living and permanent and working place in each one of our lives. We look to you for it. We ask you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the most magnificent chapters in the whole Bible, and the whole Bible is full of magnificent chapters, but this chapter was written, centered on the subject of resurrection in response to a false doctrine that was being taught in the church of Corinth that Paul encapsulates as some were teaching that there is no resurrection. The Apostle Paul then writes to this church about the implications of believing such a thing. And he began by telling them there is no gospel, there is no good news in the light of our need for forgiveness, in the light of the need for everlasting life, and so forth. There's no good news from God to mankind and our fallen condition apart from a resurrection that the gospel includes not only the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and his burial, but also his resurrection. He then went on in this very same chapter to lay out for these Christians seven disastrous spiritual consequences of denying the reality of the resurrection. And then he went on to assure us as Christians that our our resurrection one day is as sure as Jesus' resurrection. And the Apostle Paul then continued by declaring that a denial of the resurrection doesn't just have spiritual implications, but it has practical implications in our life. That to deny the resurrection of Jesus will immediately make a casualty of three things in our lives as Christians. And those three things are logic and Christian service and holy living. And then in verses 39 through 50, he answered two insincere questions that were being asked by these false teachers. They didn't want an answer, but they were hiding, they, they were denying the resurrection and hiding behind these two questions in order that their unbelief would not in any way be attacked. And the two questions that they posed as they scornfully dismissed the resurrection was, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And Paul said concerning how are the dead raised up, God does it, and it's as easy as can be for him to do it. And with what body will they be raised? They'll be raised with a body that pleases God and that is 
bears the image of Jesus and will exceed our every expectation. I have a lot of expectations about that body that I'm one day going to get. And that body will exceed every expectation for you as well. And then with these verses now, he brings this magnificent chapter to an end by uh, coming to this wonderful climax to all of his teaching. Up to this point in addressing the resurrection, he has, of necessity, had to be very, very doctrinal, uh, very, very theological. And before he leaves the subject of Jesus' resurrection and what it means to us as Christians now, he closes it with a completely different tone. This is completely emotional at the end. And uh, in, how many of you know that emotion can be a sanctified thing? So sometimes we think of emotion as being, oh yeah, they got very emotional and they were in their flesh in three seconds and whatever. The Bible says that we're to love God with all of our heart, our emotion, our mind, our thinking, our, our strength, and our spirit. And so Paul here takes, and he's going to close this chapter out with very, very strong celebration, an emotional, spiritual response to the truth of the glory that Jesus has been raised from the dead and what that means to us. And so he gives us three great causes for celebration. Number one, that uh, the fact that we shall be changed Number two, that death is swallowed up in victory. And number three, that God has made Jesus' victory over death and hell available to each and every one of us. He begins in verse 51 by saying, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And in speaking this, the Apostle Paul is answering a question. It's an unasked question. It's a question that he realizes should be asked. It hasn't really been asked, but he wants to answer it anyway before he leaves the subject of resurrection. He feels that it's important. And the question is essentially this. We know what happens to Christians when they die, but what happens to Christians who are alive when Jesus returns? What happens to Christians who are alive at the time of what is called the rapture of the church? And Paul begins to answer that question, and he begins by describing his answer to be a mystery. Behold, he says in verse 51, I tell you a mystery. Now, the word mystery, as it's used in the New Testament, is a little bit different for how we use the word mystery. We think somebody's going to tell us a mystery, and we think, oh boy, I hope I had uh, a good night's sleep and some protein for my breakfast because this is going to be hard to get my mind around. We think of mystery as being something that's kind of uh, opaque or uh, hard to understand, difficult to get our minds around. But that's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. The Bible, when it uses the term mystery, it's typically used to refer to something that was previously hidden but is now revealed to us in Christ. And the rapture of the church was a mystery. 
uh, largely unknown in terms of the doctrine of the rapture in the Old Testament, but it was revealed in the New Testament at the unveiling of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. There was no need for them to know about a rapture under that old covenant, but important for us under the new covenant to realize that. Well, what is the mystery? He tells us uh, exactly what it is in verse 51. Part of the mystery is, is that we shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die as Christians. There will be a generation of Christians who will not experience death as a means of receiving their new body, made for eternity, made for heaven. They will not have to die in order to receive that new body, uh, but that will occur at the rapture. And, uh, and, and so this is what he's talking about, this mystery that Christians, there's a generation of Christians who will be alive and they won't experience death as a means of receiving their new body. If you'd like to be a part of that list, we're going to have a sign-up out in the fellowship hall, and you can sign up afterwards. Everyone just make a beeline out. Only the top ten uh, will be eligible for this. And, but there will be that group of Christians. We may be a part of that generation. We don't know. We hope so. But they will res- that generation, instead of dying, will receive their new bodies at the moment of the rapture of the church, which occurs immediately prior to the tribulation period on the earth. And Paul writes uh, a little bit more expansively on this issue in writing to the First uh, Thessalonians, specifically in chapter 4. The second part of the mystery is, he says, but we shall all be changed. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And the point is that no matter whether a Christian dies before the rapture of the church or is alive at the time of the rapture, each of us is going to be changed out of the corruption, the corruption of this body the mortality of these bodies into bodies that are incorruptible and immortal. So these bodies that we have now, they're from the earth. They are from Adam and Eve. They are made for this earth. They are not made for eternity. They're not made for endless time. They are not made for heaven, for the environment uh, of heaven and uh, at the rapture of the church or at the time that we die individually, then that means, then at that point, we'll be further clothed with that body that's made for eternity as the Bible teaches. And so he says, we shall all be changed. And the word change there, the original language, it means to change or to alter, to make different. Now, I don't know what you change on a regular basis. People change their hairstyles on a regular basis. We ought to on a somewhat regular basis, otherwise you're going to look like you're trapped in the 80s or something. Oh, sorry about that. If any of you were offended, I said, boy, got personal there. But um, so you shouldn't be walking around in public with spandex anymore. That was an 80s thing. But hairstyles change. People change their hair colors. They change uh, the color of their... Uh, fingernail, you know, polish and things like that. I'm speaking specifically of women. I'm not speaking of men in this regard. I'm rather old school on this. So when I read about men now wearing makeup, 
and go, oh goodness, it's bad enough that women spend as much money as they do on makeup and all of this stuff, fighting the corruption and the mortality of your bodies. Won't need it in heaven, but now the guys are too, and anyway, you can do whatever you want, but do it away from me. So we change. We change things. But what do we change the most? We change our clothes, don't we? And so in one moment, go, you go to the closet, you want to put on something else different or whatever, and there it is, you pull the clothes out, and boom, in an instant, the old clothes are in a pile on the floor, and you're wearing the new outfit of, of clothes. And whether at death or at the rapture, the change from the old body to the new is going to be no more difficult than changing into a new shirt or into a new blouse. And I wonder how many of us today are ready for that change. Well, that change is coming, and Paul said it's a cause for celebration. Another cause for celebration is that death is going to be swallowed up in victory, he tells us there in verse 54. Throughout the Scriptures, there is this kind of a, a minor complexity concerning uh, our victory over death as Christians. So how to put this? Let me use the example of our uh, salvation as Christians and how the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about our salvation as Christians in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. So it talks about the fact that we have been saved, past tense. It talks about the fact that we are being saved, present tense. It speaks about the fact that we will be saved as Christians. It speaks about salvation in all three uh, tenses. We are as saved as we can possibly be at this moment. But there are aspects of our salvation that will become fully ours, experientially ours, in the future when we get to heaven. And the same thing is true when the Bible talks about our victory over death. It is our present reality. We possess a victory over death. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But there are aspects of Jesus' victory over death that while they are fully ours as Christians now, we won't know them experientially until we go to heaven individually or we go together at the rapture of the church. And one of those things about our, uh, our victory over death that is future is the receiving of this new body that is made exactly for heaven. He uses this phrase, death is swallowed up in victory, and it's powerful imagery. The word swallowed up is a very strong one in the original language, and it carries the idea of meaning to swallow something up completely so that it results in the cessation of the thing swallowed. And here that word is applied to death. Now, when I was a young boy, I used to do a lot of reading. Uh, we had a television at home when I was growing up, and it was a 13-inch black and white. And uh, 
you remember in those days you got three channels and things were limited on what you could see and all. So, and we didn't get that until uh, my childhood was well on its way. So reading was the thing. So I read every book in our city library on uh, cowboys and Indians or Native Americans, right? Um, uh, read every book on the Texas Rangers. I knew all of them. I read every book that uh, told the story of every single Congressional Medal of Honor winner in the history of the United States up to that point. Every Hardy Boy book that I could get my hands on and so forth. And I like to read a little bit about monsters. I, dinosaurs are, of course, a fascination to a boy. And, but I like monsters, and specifically sea monsters. They kind of scare me. Isn't it funny how we like to scare ourselves, you know? And, and um, so sea monsters. I don't like the water that much. I mean, I'll go out and, uh, you know, swim in it and that kind of stuff. But if somebody, all growing up, somebody say, hey, let's swim from here to that island out there. That's great. I'll fry the hot dogs and uh, barbecue them and have them ready for you when you get back. I don't like big bodies of water. I've been on a couple of cruises and all, but only because the ship is 20 times bigger than this sanctuary. And uh, for the most part, I could see the shore during the whole time. So water is kind of like a creepy thing for me. So when I would read these stories about these sailors going out on clipper ships, you know, to head out and cross these gigantic oceans or these whaling vessels that would go out with the sails and all, and then uh, take and harpoon these whales. They're out in the middle of nowhere. What if they upset these whales and they come in and just knock the ship over. No ship is big enough to be catching whales as far as I'm concerned. Certainly not a wooden one with sails. And then they launch these ships, these little boats off of the main ship where they've got the harpoons where they're doing the um, whales. And I don't know if this book was written by whales or something, kind of a whale fantasy. But I remember one time uh, they had this kind of this gigantic sea down below this picture uh, and here's this clipper ship and the whaling vessels boats are all a part of it with their harpoons and all and it sits just like this little thing up on the top of the sea and there's this gigantic whale with its mouth this big just coming up to grab a hold of that ship and bring the whole thing down and the progression of pictures chomp, hoof, gone you know, the sea just covers the whole thing back over, swallowed up. And maybe you've even seen something like that in a movie. In one moment, there it is, the person, the ship, the whatever, bobbing there on the ocean. The next minute, it's gone like it never uh, it existed at all. And that's the word that Paul uses, the strength of the word that is used uh, here in the passage. Now, notice that death isn't just swallowed up, but it's swallowed up by something, not by a whale, but it's swallowed up by victory, Paul says. And so, death is swallowed up by some kind of a victory. So we ask ourselves, what victory? Whose victory? Who won the victory? Who has defeated death that completely? And of course, the answer is that Jesus did. 
He spoke to the disciples a few days. He spoke to them continually on the issue. But he spoke to them a few days before his crucifixion, and he declared to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And so Jesus uh, did. And his resurrection was a demonstration that was intended to communicate many things to us, including his absolute victory over death and over hell. I have a lot of favorite pictures. I'm like all of you as Christians. I have many favorite pictures of Jesus in the Bible. Not all of them are from the Gospels. One of my favorites is in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book in the Bible, in chapter 1, where the apostle John is taken up into the heavenly places, whether by vision or whether he was physically transported there. Nobody can argue dogmatically one side or the other on it. But he sees the Lord Jesus in all of his glory, and he describes it this way, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Jesus' glory so great. And he laid his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And then here it is. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. In other words, by the time Jesus got done with death and hell, those two great enemies of mankind, he had not only defeated them, but reduced them to keys on his key ring. Now, a key represents authority. When you have a key to a door, you have authority over that door. You can open it anytime you want to open it. You can close it anytime that you want uh, to close it. And Jesus was communicating his, that he has absolute authority over death and over hell because he defeated them in his death and his burial and his resurrection. That's why he talks about the fact that he was and he is and he is to come. Now, at this point, someone might be thinking, and it would be a thinking person who would think it. But you might be thinking at this point in the message, well, I'm very happy for Jesus that he's defeated death. And, but what does his victory have to do with me? How can Jesus' victory over death transfer to me? How can it become my victory? And that happens through faith. Notice in verse 57. But thanks be to God, Paul says, who gives us, those are gift words, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. By putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, trusting in him as our Savior and as our Lord, then victory over death is given to us as a part of that salvation. One day there was a group of people who came to Jesus and they asked him, what shall we do that we may uh, do the works of God? And they probably had their yellow pad or they had an iPad or whatever the equivalent of it was in those days. And they're ready for him to give an answer. 
And basically what they're saying is, all right, what do we have to do to put on our bucket list here in order to do to please God so that when we die and we face God, we will be acceptable in his sight. And their pens are poised. They're ready to write down anything between the three things or the hundred things that Jesus might tell them. And that we live in a whole world that believes that you get into heaven by doing somewhere between three and a hundred things that will please God, and then you'd walk right in. But Jesus' answer was different than that. Jesus spoke to them, and he said, this is the work of God. Their pens are poised. They're serious about God. They're serious about heaven. They want to meet God. They want to be in heaven after this life. And Jesus says, this is the work of God. And here was the answer, that you believe or trust in him, that is Jesus, whom he, that is the Father, sent. We gain everlasting life and a victory over death by coming to God and saying, God, I accept your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that you are so holy that but one sin in my life separates me from you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of sins, a payment no sinner could ever pay. And I believe that he was buried and he rose again on the third day as the scriptures teach and as you promised. And I put my trust in him as the Savior that pleases you and that is the salvation that pleases you. And I turn from my own direction in life in order to do that. And when a person does that, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and the greatest miracle that can happen in a human life occurs. We're born again by the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, in the words of verse 57, God then gives us the forgiveness of sins, the power to live a holy life like Jesus, and a victory over death. In other words, everlasting life. There is only one proper preparation for death and eternity, that the eternity that follows it, and that is faith in Jesus as your Savior. Jesus himself said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Someone has uh, put all of this this way, and I like it very much. He says, don't go out of this world without knowing why you came into it. That's a good thing to be spoken to our Western culture, to our American culture, Don't go out of this world without understanding why you came into it to begin with. And what is the answer to that question? Why were you born? Why are we a part of human history? Why were we born into this world? And again, in the book of Revelation, we're told as the four and twenty elders are falling down 
before the Lord who's sitting on the throne and worshiping him as the passage tells us that lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the, the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things. And then here's the answer to the question. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. The reason that we have been born into this world is in order to bring pleasure to God. We're created for His pleasure, created for the relationship that He desires to have with each and every one of us. It isn't enough to just know Him as creator. People say, yes, there's a creator out there, and yes, I believe that much about God. That won't get us into heaven. It isn't enough to believe that God exists. The Bible says that the, the devils, the demons believe in the existence of God. Do you realize there's not a single demon that is an atheist or an agnostic? Not one of them doubts the Word of God. Not one of them doubts that God exists. Not one of them. But now one of them is going to be in heaven because it isn't enough to believe that God exists. I must also put my faith in His Savior in order to then begin a relationship with Him that will I, I will then enjoy all of this life and all of the life to come. And when a person enters into that relationship, the relationship that we've been created for, and since we've been created for it, nothing in life will make sense until we're engaged in it. I don't care how many people you marry, how many people you date, how much booze you drink, how many drugs you take, how many vacations you take, how many promotions you, go, you have, how many books you read, how many movies you read. At the end of it all, you will have a sense that I've been created for more than this. I'm still empty. You say, why do we feel there must be something more to life than I have experienced? And it's for this reason. Until I'm engaged in the one thing I've been created for, a relationship with God, then nothing will satisfy. There will always be that sense that there must be something more to life than I've experienced. And then you become a Christian. God comes into your life and all of a sudden they can write above your head, I mean the, the encapsulation of your life, satisfied, the thirst is quenched, the journey is over, the, the, the search is over because we've been made for that relationship. And once a person trusts in the Lord, then, as Paul tells us in verses uh, 55 and 56, we can join him in his sanctified taunting of death. Verse 55 is a very, very interesting verse. Paul writes, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? He is taunting death. He is taunting hell in quoting that passage. He is taunting it from the position of being in Christ. 
And it's only because he's a Christian that allows him to do that. There is a sanctified taunting on the part of the part of the Apostle Paul concerning both death and hell. Fascinating when I uh, you think about a taunting and what might come into your mind as a picture as we talk about pictures that come to the minds of a young boy or an older person. But to me, one of the pictures that comes into my mind concerning Paul's taunt here in verse uh, 55 is a picture that was made famous in 1964, so I was nine years old. And I forget what magazine it was in, Life magazine or something, but it was a picture of a very, very young Cassius Clay, later on to become known as Muhammad Ali. And he is standing in the ring in, night, in, in uh, the seventh round as he won his first heavyweight championship. And he is standing over the knocked out champion of the world, Sonny Liston, who was flat on his back. Sonny Liston had beaten everybody the previous year. He was going to supposed to make mincemeat out of Muhammad Ali, and you've got that picture of him, and, and, and there is Sonny Liston on his back, and Muhammad Ali's got his fists like this, and he's just taunting him, looking at him. It's a beautiful picture, the strength of it. And to be able to look at death in that same way. Listen, we didn't knock death out. Jesus knocked death out. But we can be on the side of the ring and enjoy the taunting. We can enjoy the defeat of death and all of that. But that picture of the taunt that Muhammad Ali gave forth uh, in all of that. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And you look at how bold Paul's faith is concerning death and because of the victory that he had over death and over hell. And the idea is, I have been convinced that Paul feels this in his core, but he wants it to be contagious. That this would be our attitude in the face of both death and hell. And to face death in this very way, to face every thought of death in this very way, completely freed from the bondage of fear and death. One of the things that I've done through the years, and it's a very interesting thing to do as a Christian, uh, all pastors have to end up doing it at some point in time, as a part of being a pastor, is to read the final quotes of people on their deathbed, whether it's uh, famous saints or not so famous saints, or those that are on their deathbed that were atheists or agnostics and uh, rejected God or whatever it might be, and then how did they face death? And it's a very interesting study, actually. You can go on Google and anybody's able to do that. One of my favorites of all is a gentleman by the name of Sir uh, Michael Faraday, and he lived in the late 1700s and well into the uh, 1800s. And he was a Christian, a very, very strong Christian, and one of the most famous and influential scientists in human history to this day. Albert Einstein kept a picture of Sir Michael Faraday on the wall of his office. That's how impacted by him he was. He was self-taught as a scientist 
and uh, influence not only his own generation, but his influence goes all the way into our current modern age. Mr. Michael Faraday was on his deathbed, and as he, was on his, as he was on his deathbed, there were some who came to comfort him uh, in, uh, in his facing of death, and they came to comfort him with the idea of offering him some, of, some speculations of men uh, related to death. And Sir Michael Faraday starts to listen to them talk, and he, and he interrupts them, and he says, Speculations? He said, I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. This is a scientist, by the way. He said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And it's the same boldness of the Spirit that's found in the Apostle Paul in verse 55 and the boldness that the Spirit of God wants to put in the hearts of every single one of us as Christians in the face of death and in the face of hell. They are defeated enemies for us. The sting has been removed. The victory has been taken away from Hades. And I like the contagiousness of the verse. It's intended to infect all of us as Christians when those two great things would come near, either in, in, in trying to impart fear into our hearts, where death is still a long way off for us, or we're on our deathbed. Paul writes, O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been removed. And I like the old story. Every preacher tells it in preaching on this passage, but everybody has a right to hear it once and have it maybe become the thing that they think of and gives life to the statement, Oh, death, where is your sting? And it's the story of a father and his son driving in a car on a summer day and the windows are all down. And a bee comes into the compartment of the car and is flying around. And the young boy becomes hysterical. He's allergic to bees. This is a great danger to him. And the bee is f going around and the father is frantically trying to reach out to grab the bee. And ultimately, he makes a swipe into the car. The bee is in his hand. He holds it for a moment or two. And then to the horror of his son, he releases the bee a second time. And then he says to his son, he says, look, look closely. And the boy looks at his hand of his father, and there in his father's hand is the sting. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And just as the bee loses its stinger when it stings, so death lost its sting when it stung Jesus. And it stung Jesus, but it lost its sting in doing so. He says, oh, Hades, where is your victory? Hades has been robbed of its victory. And Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, his burial, his resurrection from the dead has put every single Christian beyond the reach of both death and hell. And at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, death and hell, the Bible teaches, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Human history will give way to a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no more sin and there will be no more death, recorded in Revelation chapter 20.
Because of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and our faith in him, it has placed us beyond both the reach of sin and law and the law forever and ever, verse 56. And what is all of this intended to produce within us? He tells us in verse 56, verse 57, rather, it's a cause for celebration. I love it about Paul. He said, no, I don't want the resurrection to just be a theological fact or a doctrinal position of God's people. I want it to be so real to them that when they think about it, they celebrate in their hearts and they give thanks to the God who would be so good and so loving that he'd be willing to pay the price that both he and his son were willing to pay in order for us to be forgiven and in order for us to have everlasting life. And the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, he felt the same way as the Apostle Paul. He couldn't talk about all of this resurrection and eternal life and the victory over death without also heading into a celebration into praise. You might remember that he begins his first epistle, blessed, that's a praise word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so praise the Lord. Death is swallowed up in victory. And this great enemy of mankind has lost its sting. And one day it will cease to exist entirely for the Christian as the fullness of Jesus' victory is fully applied to our lives. Because of all of this, we are freed, as the Bible says, from the bondage of the fear of death. There is only one freedom from the bondage of the fear of death, and that is faith in Christ. It is the only adequate preparation for eternity and for one day standing before God. If you've never done that, never confessed your sin to God, so you got me pegged. I'm a sinner. I'm going way back. And yes, I do believe that you are so holy that my sin would separate me from a relationship with you. I'm not so arrogant as to think that I'm so great that I could have a relationship with you on my own terms. But I thank you that in my folly and in my sin that you were willing to send your son to die on that cross in order that I might receive salvation as a free gift from you and begin the relationship with you that I've been created for. And if you've never done that, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to pray with you to do exactly that. This world's a nutty old place. It's crazy.
And man talks and talks and talks and talks. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he's talking about. He can't stop talking. And unfortunately, now we have about 47,000 channels on the television to listen to him talk. And how many channels on the radio and the talking and the talking and the dividing and the categorizing and the hyphenating and the secular and the religious and the spiritual and the worldly and all of this stuff and it all gets all goofed up and we begin to think that there's a life over here that's one thing that's lived in the flesh and the definitions of man and then there's this other thing, this other compartment that we all have that's religious and it's spiritual and God says I don't know anything about any of that here's what I know I created you and I created you for a relationship with me and I love you and I long to have that relationship with you it will be unlike any other relationship that I have with any of the rest of my children. And I've done everything that I can do short of putting you in a headlock and forcing you into that relationship. It's completely in your court. But if you take even half a step toward me and put your trust in my son, I'll begin that relationship with you in an instant. It's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. Don't leave today without being prepared for eternity. Don't come into this world and leave it without knowing why you were here and what it was all about. That's what it's all about. Let's all stand together and have the worship team come forward. I'd like us to close. Not so much with a prayer on my part of leading you in prayer, but in a song that we're all going to sing together. And as we think about how Jesus' victory has, and His grace has overwhelmed our past, it overwhelms our every present need, it overwhelms our future, I'd like us to close by singing uh, a, a few stanzas from the song Amazing Grace. Don't you wish you could sing that song for the first time every time you sang it? There's this curse of familiarity. But just think about these words as we sing them now and think about how far-reaching God's grace is in your life and how far-reaching His victory is. And let's leave this morning with a spirit of celebration and thanksgiving to the God who has made all of it available to us and as a gift. Mike, would you close us?
My fear. 